0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello. My name is Arnold Kriegstein. I'm a neurologist and a neuroscientist. I work at UCSF. And my lab studies uh, brain development, both in animals and uh, also in humans. And my talk today will actually be in two parts. Uh, The first one will focus on normal aspects of brain development. And the second talk will focus more on diseases and ways that we can model human development uh, in the laboratory. So, I thought I'd begin with some very broad statements that I think many of you may already understand or know. Uh, First, that the human brain is not the largest uh, mammal brain. It is, however, the largest among primates, as shown here. Uh, But elephants and whales, cetaceans and porpoises, they have larger brains than we do. uh, And they're also more highly folded, as shown in these images. But the human brain still holds the record in terms of the largest number of neurons. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, next, namely, how do these cells uh, develop in early stages of brain development? And the neuron number is determined in utero, uh, when the brain is developing as a fetus, as shown here. And to orient you to some of the images I'm going to show, many of them are cross-sections in the progenitor regions of the early developing brain, as shown here. So, one of the key uh, foundations of our understanding of brain development uh, was uh, outlined by Pasco Rikic over 30 years ago in what has come to be known as the radial unit hypothesis, and that's diagrammed by him here, And the key features I wanted to emphasize are this radial glial scaffold. As you can see, these radial fibers that run from the bottom of the slide, which is the ventricular surface, all the way up to the surface of the brain, the outer surface, known as the pia. And along those fibers, neurons migrate. And over time, uh, a single spot in the ventricle produces neurons that form a column of cells, sometimes referred to as an ontogenetic column, where the deeper cortical layers are born first, the upper cortical layers, layers later and some of them may be clonally related. That is, they may derive from the same progenitor cells, which divides at the surface of the ventricle, down at the bottom of the slide. That's the basic feature of brain development across all species. But there are species-specific differences, which we'll highlight over the course of of these next two talks. Now, the radial glial cell is at the center of much of our understanding of cortical organization during brain development. And the radial glial cell, is shown here, basically by its radial fiber, which runs, as shown here at the bottom, all the way to the top of the slide. And along that radial fiber is a neuron. And you can see the leading and trailing processes of that neuron are twined around that radial fiber. And that emphasizes the key guidance role of these radial fibers, because they guide the role of these... uh, the migration of these neurons from where they're born, down at the ventricle, to where they finally reside, up at the top of the cortex. And that was thought for many years to be the key function of these radioglial cells, namely, that they guide neurons during early stages of cortical migration. But starting about 20 years ago, the concept has changed, and some of that was uh, due to experiments that were done in my lab by Steve Nocter, a very gist- gifted postdoc at the time. And these are some of the images from his work. And this shows uh, our use of a retrovirus to label cells in the uh, progenitor zone in a mouse, and a rat, mainly by injecting the retrovirus in utero, into the ventricle. And with a very low titer of virus, we could label only one or two cells in the entire hemisphere of the brain. And one of those uh, cells is shown here, a little ventricular zone cell, which turned out to be a radial glial cell. But if we watch that cell over time, for example, after three days of the infection, we saw clones, like the one shown here, consisting of one radial glial cell and two or three other cells usually arrayed along that radial glial fiber. So, we wondered where these cells were coming from, who was generating whom, as it were, and how these cells might be clonally related. And so we started looking day by day at the progression of the size of each of these clones. And we noticed that within the first day, or 24 hours, shown here on the left, most of our clones consisted only of a single radioglial cell. But a day later, shown in the middle panels, there were two or three cells in each clone, consisting still of one radioglial cell and one or two other different cell types. And then three days later, shown in the panels closest to me, there were more complicated clones, and they mostly consisted of one radial glial cell, and three or four cells usually arrayed along that radial fiber. So, we reasoned that what was probably happening is that the initially infected radial glial cell, over time, was dividing and producing these clones, which, in each case, self-renewed. So, there was only one radial glial cell in each clone. But the daughter cells started to accumulate, and some of them were turning into neurons. And at the time, this was a very unexpected finding. And so to try to confirm this directly, we did time-lapse imaging. And one of those images is shown here. And it confirms what we sort of hypothesized based on those still images. The first cell that was initially infected was a radial glial cell. And as shown here, it divides at the surface of the ventricle and produces a daughter cell. But the radial glial fiber never retracted. So that radial glial cell was a self-renewed radial glia after that first division. And then the nucleus of the radial glial cell moved back up. It goes through interkinetic nuclear migration, as do all neuroepithelial cells. And the daughter cell started migrating away. And I hope you can appreciate it's migrating along the parental radial fiber. And initially we thought these could be neurons. But we observed more carefully and noticed that when the radial glial cell goes through its next cell cycle, which is shown here at the ventricle, the daughter cell also rounded up and divided. So, this wasn't a neuron. It was actually a, a different type of progenitor. And so we call those intermediate progenitor cells. And that progenitor cell, shown here, divides symmetrically to produce two daughter cells that continue migrating up to the cortex and, in the end, become a pair of cortical neurons. So, this pattern of neurogenesis, where the radial glial cells turn out to be the neural stem cells, was really quite unexpected at the time, but has now uh, been widely recognized as the way most cortical cells, in fact, most CNS neurons, are born from radial glial cells. Now, those daughter cells, which we called intermediate progenitors, are especially interesting. And here I'm showing you what they look like over time, where they're located in the progenitor zones. So, at embryonic day 12, in, in a rodent, they're mixed together with the ventricular radial glial cells. And you can see that also in E15. I should point out, we have a marker here for those intermediate progenitors that Bob Hevner introduced. He worked in John Rubenstein's lab at UCSF. And that marker for a gene called TBR2 shows the yellow, or red, cells here, which at E15 are still mixed together with the ventricular radial glial cells. But by E17, the panel shown in the bottom, they've formed a distinct layer, which is known as the subventricular zone. And so the ventricular zone contains almost entirely radial glia at these stages, but the subventricular zone, or the SVZ for short, has now developed, and it contains almost all of those daughter cells, the intermediate progenitors. So, that forms two progenitor zones in most of the period of neurogenesis in rodents like the mouse or the rat. Now, this is highlighted here because these two different progenitor types are the cells that are making all of the cortical neurons and also the glial cells in the developing uh, brain of, of most mammals. And just to emphasize, the radial glial cells are in this ventricular zone, shown in blue in this schematic, and their daughter cells are the intermediate progenitors, which are also sometimes referred to as basal progenitors. And they've formed another zone, which is a distance from the ventricle. They're the cells here, shown in green. And they're the ones that actually produce most of the cortical neurons in rodents. And this is schematized in this diagram where time goes from left to right. And I just want to start on the far left with the neuropathelial cells, because ultimately all the cells of the brain come from those neuropathelial cells. They form the neural plate, and then ultimately that closes to form a neural tube, and then neurogenesis begins. And when neurogenesis begins, these neuroepithelial cells seem to transform into radial glia that we've been talking about. And those radial glia produce neurons probably directly, initially, which is shown in that first diagram as a little red neuron. But then they quickly start going through this two-phase procedure, where they first make the intermediate progenitors, in green, and then those intermediate progenitors divide once in rodents to produce a pair of neurons that usually migrate along the parent fiber, and eventually, uh, over time, these cells populate a radial column of cells. So, this very much resembles that radial unit hypothesis that Pascal Rikic first proposed, you know, almost 30 years ago. And at the end of neurogenesis, those radial glial cells transform into astrocytes, and that's shown in this final uh, panel to the right, which is actually why those neural... uh, those radial glial cells are often referred to as neural stem cells, because they make neurons, and then they also make glial cells, the astrocytes, and ultimately also the oligodendrocytes. So, they really are making all the cell components of the brain, or in this case, of the cerebral cortex. the cell type, we started looking in other species. And we were very surprised to see that there are ORG-like cells across mammalian species, including in the mouse. And what's shown here are some time-lapse images of what we think is a mouse outer radioglial cell. And it's a looped film, so you'll see it over and over again. Um, What's happening is the cell is dividing in a region that could be called the outer subventricular zone, if the mouse had an outer subventricular zone, which we don't think it does. But the fiber, as you can see, goes all the way up to the peel surface, just like those human outer radioglia. And the cell jumps a little bit before it divides. So it has its own MST, sort of a mouse MST, because it's much shorter than the jump in the human brain. But the cells do jump and divide, and they have the same features morphologically that you see in the human cells. So we think these are mouse outer radioglia. They're found in relatively small proportions and mostly concentrated on the medial side of the developing cortex. So they're uh, not nearly as widespread as in the human brain. But it does tell us that, from an evolutionary perspective, they were present uh, in uh, rodents before... obviously, before primates developed, but they became usually expanded in large-brain mammals, and especially in in humans. So, just to highlight these progenitor cells that we find very abundant in the human brain, they include the ORG cells, which are very much like the radial glia at the ventricle. We think they're neural stem cell-like. And their daughter cells, which I haven't highlighted yet, which are uh, like the intermediate progenitors that the ventricular radioglia make in the mouse, except they divide more than once. And so we call them transit amplifying cells. So the outer radioglia and daughter transit amplifying cells are found in the outer subventricular zone of the human brain, and that's a progenitor zone that you don't see in rodents like the mouse. Now, one of the features I wanted to highlight, just to make sure there are no misunderstandings, has to do with cortical folding. So, this is a dendrogram of uh, of mammalian evolution, and these are the major uh, mammalian uh, species classes. And as shown here in the panels on the right, there are both lysencephalic or smooth-brain, as well as folded, or gyrencephalic, examples uh, for individuals in each of these mammals, uh, mammal classes. So, if we look at the top, for example, in carnivores, uh, the ferret is a carnivore that's typical of most of them, like cats, for example, they have a highly folded surface uh, of the cortex. But there are other carnivores, like the brown bat, shown on the right, which are fact, They have a smooth surface. And also, among rodents, most of them, like the mouse, shown here, has a smooth cortex. But large mammals, like the capybara, which are found in South America, have a folded cortex, even though they're rodents. And then among primates, of course, the human and most monkeys are folded, but not all monkeys. So, for example, the uh, uh, mouse rat is shown on the right, and also... I'm sorry, the... Uh, the Senegal bush, bush baby, as shown on the right, and also marmosets, are examples of monkeys that have a smooth or lissencephalic cortex. And similarly, although the elephant, as I mentioned at the bottom, is highly folded, um, the manatee, which is closely related to the elephant, has a smooth or relatively smooth brain. So, among all these major mammalian classes, there are examples of both smooth and folded cortex. But what I want to emphasize is that, from the examples that have been looked at in utero, they all seem to have an outer subventricular zone, and many of them have large numbers of outer radioglial cells. So, having an outer subventricular zone filled with outer radioglia doesn't mean you're going to have a folded cortex. So, they may be necessary to have cortical folding, uh, but they aren't clearly sufficient. They're not the only uh, contribution to having folded cortices. And in this talk, that's probably all I'm going to have to say about the etiology of cortical folding, which is by itself very interesting, but not something that we fully understand. Now, I should mention that uh, a lot of the understanding of cortical development, especially in the human, has emerged only in the last five or six years from the introduction of a very powerful technology, which I want to mention in the next few slides, which is single-cell RNA sequencing. And we've used it in our lab to sort of disentangle the cellular composition or the complexity of the cell types in the developing human brain. And uh, we've done this the way most people are using single-cell sequencing now, by dissociating the cortical cells into their individual cell types, capturing them in some sort of mechanical uh, system, in this case a microchip shown at the bottom, and then doing uh, individual RNA sequencing so we can look at the genes expressed by individual cells. Uh, We adapted this technology uh, relatively early on and used a Fluidine platform, which is shown here, and in our first uh, paper, we only studied about 250 to 300 cells, uh, a, a number that's almost laughably small these days when people are sequencing millions of cells. Uh, but even with that small number of around 250 or 300, uh, we came up with some very important insights, I think, which I'd like to highlight in the next few slides. First of all, we can take this data set and, uh, using bioinformatics, we can express it graphically uh, in uh, algorithms that give you Tisney uh, plots, like the one shown here on the right, where we've clustered the cells according to genes that they uh, have in common, and then use canonical marker expression to color them according to the cell types. So, for example, the cluster of cells that are in yellow represent radial glia and cells. The cells in red are the intermediate progenitors, their daughter cells. The blue cells are excitatory neurons, and the black ones are inhibitory neurons. So, we can obviously decide on major cell types by using this bioinformatic clustering algorithm. That allowed us to see if there were genes that were unique to individual cell clusters and these we could use as marker genes, or tools, to identify those cell types. And we're very gratified with our first set of human cells that we came up with unique genes for progenitor cell types of interest. And what I'm showing on the left are three genes that we discovered that were uniquely expressed by ventricular radial glia in the developing human brain. And these are in situ hybridizations, showing the localization of those genes in cortical sections. And uh, as the data would predict, the cells are located along the surface of the ventricle. I I hope you can see this. Uh, Right along here are uh, the expressions for genes that we would expect to be in ventricular radioglia. The right three genes are genes our data set predicted would be unique to the outer radioglial cells. These are my cell of particular interest. And you can see that they're located in the outer subventricular zone where you'd expect them to be. So, this has helped validate these as new markers or new genes that are expressed selectively in the outer radioglial cells. So, this gave us tools we didn't have before to identify these cells in tissue sections. It also allowed us to look at gene expression over time, or lineage, as cells matured or developed from one cell type to another. And what's shown in the bottom panel now are some of the genes that highlight uh, differences between the radioglia, the daughter intermediate progenitor cells, and ultimately the neurons that they make. So, this allows us to see not only gene expression in terms of markers, but also uh, an understanding of what those genes might be doing that's unique in terms of physiology behavior or identity of each of these different cell types and i want to go back to my favorite cell type the outer glial cell to highlight some of these insights so what our data set showed was that the genes that seemed unique to the human auditory glial cell fell into certain categories which i'm highlighting here first that they were involved in the production of growth factors which they secreted into the extracellular space They also made extracellular matrix proteins, which were also secreted. They had activated self-renewal pathways that stem cells often express, which allow them to self-renew or increase their numbers. Uh, And also, I want to highlight that they were enriched in genes that are associated with mTOR signaling. And the mTOR signaling pathway has been implicated in diseases like autism, and so we're very interested that the outer radial glial cells, in particular, uh, in the human brain, were enriched in uh, these genes that were uh, involved in mTOR signaling. And I'll get back to the importance of that uh, in the end of my second talk. Now, these outer radial glial cells, shown diagrammatically here, uh, are extremely interesting to us. Um, They're highly expanded in the human brain, and they have many unique or enriched signaling pathways, which I've highlighted here, and uh, which I think tell us quite a bit about the biology of this cell type. But these same insights uh, are also available from our... our and other gene sets from single-cell sequencing, Uh, to focus on all the different cell types, both the progenitors, the young neurons, and the more mature neurons that are developing in the human brain. And uh, the gene expression differences between those cells in humans and those in other non-primate or non-human species can give us some insights into evolution, which I'll also talk about in my second talk. But our understanding of the uh, cellular complexity of the developing brain Uh, is quite different in rodents as it is in humans. And I just want to highlight that with these schematics. This one, showing uh, much much of what I've described earlier about the mouse and the progenitor types that make neurons and glia in a rodent development, contrasting with what we now are beginning to understand in human brain development, which is more complex in terms of the number or diversity of progenitor types, but also in terms of the number and diversity of neurons that they produce. So, just to highlight, at the very beginning stages of cortical development, The rodent and human are really very similar. And they look like what's shown here ventricular radial glia producing daughter intermediate progenitors that make neurons. But in the human brain, this quickly changes to what's shown diagrammatically here, where those ventricular radial glial cells produce outer radial glia that migrate into a new zone, the outer subventricular zone, where they go through these repeated uh, divisions, each time self renewing. So there's an outer radial glial cell that's preserved. But there's a daughter cell that's produced, shown here in green, which divides more than once to produce a clone of neurons, which then migrate into the cortex. So, the outer glial cells can increase neuron production. They also provide additional paths along which neurons can migrate. So, we think this is part of the contribution toward the expansion of the human brain, both in early development and also in evolution. And then, uh, at the end, after they produce cortical neurons, these outer radial glia, as well as the ventricular radial glia, transform into glial cells, like astrocytes, and they also seem to produce oligodendrocytes, which are the two primary classes of of non-neural glial cells. So, we think these outer radial glial cells, like the ventricular radial glia, are actually neural stem cells. But they're a new type, uh, which is not only found in the human brain, but is enriched in the human brain. Now, I want to return, uh, in my final comments, to the model that I mentioned early on that was so foundational in understanding rodent uh, brain development and primate brain development, which is the radial unit hypothesis. And what you can see in this diagram is that the radial fibers run continuously from the ventricular zone down at the bottom all the way up to the surface of the cortex uh, up above, and it's that continuous glial uh, fiber, this glial scaffold, that actually allows the brain to grow radially. So, we were struck, therefore, when we started using our new tools, these uh, genes that I mentioned are markers for cell types that we didn't have before, and started looking at the morphology of these cells in the developing human brain. And what's shown here at gestation week 18 are the outer radial glial cells, stained in red with a new marker called HopX, which uh, is uniquely expressed at this stage in outer radial glial cells, and then Cryb, which is shown in green, which is a marker for the ventricular radial glia at this stage. And what we noticed was that the green fibers at the bottom of the slide, you can see them lining the ventricle, uh, we expected those fibers to go all the way up to the top of the cortex like that model would predict. But we didn't find any of the green fibers at the top of the cortex. All the fibers up at the top were red, suggesting that they came from outer radial glia. And we looked more carefully at the green fibers shown here on the panel on the right, the cryo B fibers, and they all seem to end about halfway up where those radial outer radial glial cells reside. So it appeared that there was a discontinuous glial scaffold. The ventricular fibers went only so far, and then the outer radial glial red fibers seemed to go the rest of the way, and that was really quite surprising. So to confirm that, we used a different method. We looked at uh, the spread of dye crystals, which travel uh, lipophilically along a membrane. So if we put crystals of dye at the surface of the brain, shown here at gestation week 15, uh, they were diffusing along those fibers and and actually allowed us to visualize the fibers. And as you see in this panel, with the cross-section of human brain, uh, there's a continuous fiber. All those uh, black stripes that you see, um, which look like bands because they're individual radial glial fibers that have been stained, they go all the way from the top of the brain, the peel surface, to the ventricle at the bottom. And the same thing was seen if we put the crystals at the ventricle. They form this continuous glial scaffold, just as you'd predict. But a week or two later, uh, by gestation week 18, for example, there was a very different picture. And so, if we put those crystals on the surface of the brain, they only filled fibers that ended around... Uh, halfway down, around the outer subventricular zone. And if we put the crystals of the ventricle, shown here in the panel on the right, those fibers ended uh, also about halfway up, exactly mimicking what we saw uh, with our markers shown on the left. So, this really did suggest that there was a discontinuous glial scaffold. But it also showed us that it emerged about halfway through corticogenesis. And that's diagrammed schematically here. So, on the left-hand side, you can see that there's a radial glial scaffold that goes from the ventricle mostly up to the cortex. Neurons are born near the ventricle or the subventricular zone. They migrate along those fibers, just like the traditional models would predict. But about halfway through cortical development, when layer 4 is being produced, things change dramatically. And the outer radial glial cells are uh, largely produced at that stage. Uh, They inherit the radial fibers from the ventricular zone cells that that they derive from, and those ORG cells then jump away from the ventricle, form the outer subventricular zone, and then, as shown in the last three panels, they produce and also guide the migration for all of the uh, upper cortical layer neurons, which are produced in the second half of corticogenesis. This suggests that the second half of corticogenesis differs from the first half, and critically, the deeper cortical layers, and the upper cortical layers, have slightly different lineages. They derive and develop in slightly different ways in the human brain. Turns out this is not true in other uh, mammals, like, for example, rodents, or even ferrets, carnivores. They seem to have a continuous glial scaffold throughout corticogenesis. Why we think that's interesting, or especially interesting, uh, is because Marin Padilla, many, many years ago, did notice that there were human-specific or primate-specific features of the upper cortical layers. They're more cell-dense than in other species. Uh, They may have more diversity of cell types than other species. And so he reasoned that the supergranular layers, the ones above layer 4, were different in primates than in other mammals. And we now think this discontinuous glial scaffold I've just shown you, which we see in humans, also extends to other non-human primates, but not to rodents or carnivores. So, we think this may be a primate-specific feature of brain development and it seems to fit or correlate with those primate-specific features of the upper cortical layers. So, the reason I'm emphasizing all this is because the upper cortical layers uh, are also implicated in higher cortical function. The connections they form are between one cortical region and another. They're part of what we call the association uh, fibers. They they are responsible for higher cortical function, cognitive functions and and things that we think are especially enriched in in human uh, behaviors while the deeper cortical layers have neurons that project often outside of the cortex, to subcortical regions. They're, they're kind of the skeletal framework of the nervous system, uh, and they're also highly conserved. So, we think that the difference in etiology, and, and in this case in development, of the upper cortical layers may have an important role to play in the function of these neurons that may have been especially enhanced in primates and, in particular, uh, in humans. And I'll return to this uh, evolutionary differences in the second talk. So, my conclusion so far... Uh, the developing human cortex contains a diversity of progenitor cells that we don't find in species like the mouse or rodent, which make it difficult to study in those animal models. And I want to emphasize the outer radioglial glial cells. Uh, they're particularly abundant in the developing human brain, uh, but they're not only human-specific. We even find some similar cells, uh, even in the mouse. But they're highly abundant in, in human uh, brain development, and we think contributed to human brain expansion and evolution. And the outer radial glial cells, in particular, uh, contributed to the upper cortical layers. And so they may play a particular role in diseases of cognitive function, including autism, which, once again, uh, we'll get to in the next talk. Uh, So, thank you so much for your attention, and I especially want to mention that uh, the work I've highlighted from my own lab has uh, covered over uh, two decades more of work, and so there have been multiple students and postdocs, all of them very gifted, who've contributed enormously to the projects that I've described, and I haven't given them all credit Um, But I want you all to realize that uh, this was not done by myself. It was done by the people in my lab. It was a joint effort. We also had collaborators from outside our own lab, uh, all of whom have contributed. And so it was a a wonderful project that I've had the uh, pleasure and, I think, the honor of uh, explaining to you today. Thanks so much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.